Chapter fourteen of the Milky Way. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Milky Way by F. Tennyson Jesse. Chapter fourteen. A flutter in Fleet Street. On the following Monday morning, which I have often thought since was a tactless time to choose, Peter and I began the pilgrimage of Fleet Street. First we went down it on the top of an omnibus, because Peter said you couldn't hope to be any good in a place until you had grasped the atmosphere of it, and at the sight of the offices of famous papers whose names stood out in huge gilt letters across the dingy brickwork, even I, who had no pretensions to journalism beyond an idea of drawing fashion plates, felt a rising thrill of excitement. Then Peter started going into the offices at one end of the street, while I began at the other, and after two days' fruitless work we met in the middle, outside the last shrine of journalism unvisited by either of us. We decided to attack it hand in hand, but we first had to go back to the hen-coop with various sweets and pastries Joe had commissioned us to buy for the Drency that night. Laden with paper bags we made our way back to St. John's Wood, and found the studio in wild confusion. Backgrounds heaped in a pile preparatory to being draped on the walls. The two model thrones stacked one on top of the other, and the floor one litter of lilac boughs and dog daisies. Jo, her head tied up in a silk handkerchief, was strewing tea-leaves amongst everything with more impartiality than judgment. Chloe was nowhere to be seen. "'Where's Chloe?' I asked, as I began to spread potted shrimp sandwiches, which were to be optimistically labelled caviar. "'Buying floor powder and things, with Morris Purvis,' answered Jo rather shortly. Later, washed and brushed, having snatched a bread-and-buttery kind of lunch, Peter and I prepared to depart once more, but Joe called me back. Viv, swear you'll turn up in time for this evening. You won't let anything stand in the way. I'm worried to death about Chloe and this Purvis creature. Somehow I believe things will come to a head tonight, and I look to you to save the situation. You simply mustn't fail us. I promise you I'll be back in time. Come along, Peter, we shall have to fly. We flew, on a number thirteen bus, as ill omen and the arrangements of the London General Omnibus Company would have it. And on the way we compared our experiences of Fleet Street. Mine had been fairly simple. Almost everyone had been kind but nothing had resulted. I had nearly always attained the editors, because their underlings were so good-natured and took so much trouble over me. From what I had seen of Fleet Street I could say with truth that the spirit of rivalry and grudging of which one hears simply does not exist, at least among the poor underdogs like oneself. It was the upper dogs, the plump and inordinately worried potentates who sat ensconced in vast leather armchairs, who were the unpleasant people. 
either smoking in my face and not opening the door for me, or far worse, being too civil in that odious what a charming little girl you are kind of way. Whenever Peter had penetrated as far as an editor, which was not often, nothing more than an invitation to leave his name and address had resulted, save in the precincts of one Sunday paper, where Peter had offered to write his reminiscences of clergy he had met, and was asked if instead he knew of any safe scandals in society. The editor had added with a genial smile, Blood's what we want. Now as we went together up the flight of steps leading to the great glass swing doors of the weekly drum, we felt that our last chance had come, and it was with a quickly beating heart that I approached the commissionaire, who metal-bedecked, loomed from a kind of hutch in the hall. He was a dear man, and I believe it was owing to his kindly offices that we were at length admitted to the innermost shrine of the weekly drum. It was a large comfortable room, lined with books and boasting the inevitable scarlet and blue turkey carpet. A little man in big spectacles and with a mop of grey hair swung round at us on a revolving chair as we entered. Then he got up and pushed a steadier variety forward for me. When we were all seated he looked from one to the other of us. The babes in the wood redivivi, he remarked with apparent irrelevance. Well, well, I mustn't waste my time. What do you want? We, began Peter and I together, then stopped. Ladies first, said the little man. Now then, miss, he referred to a slip of paper in his hand, Miss Lovell. Lord Lovell, he stood at his castle gate, combing his milk-white steed. How does it go on, that old song? Ah, well, to business. We want work, if you please, said I. One or t'other of you, or both. Both, if possible. If not, one. And what have you done up till now, in the two or three years that have elapsed since you left your cradle? I've done a great many things, said I, drawing myself up, and wishing I hadn't such a farthing face, and didn't look so like a little boy. I belong, as we say in Cornwall, to be a painter, and I illustrated a book last winter for Harriet and Dale, but they went bankrupt, and so I went in a cargo boat where I met Mr. Wimperus, and he took me to a travelling theatre. And now I've left there, and Mr. Wimperus has left too, and I'm living with some painter friends in their studio, but of course I can't go on sponging on them. Dear me, murmured the great man, and Mr. Whimperus, what is he doing? He's writing in an attic in Bloomsbury, but as we are great friends we thought it would be nice if we looked for work together. You've no idea how disheartening it is doing things by yourself. And I am sure that the young man here has great ambitions and is only by way of marking time, said the editor shrewdly. Tell me, sir, do you wish to settle down to Fleet Street? I think it might be a jolly useful school, replied Peter, after a second's hesitation. 
while you're preparing some epic-making work, eh? asked the editor. I know you're kind. And you, Miss Vivian Lovell, are you a genius too? Oh dear, no. I'm just going to make pictures for the great work. But you see, one can't do even that unless one can make enough to live on. Do you think we should be any good on your paper? Well, you see, the editor confided, things don't happen like that in a newspaper office. I wish to goodness they did. It's the great complaint one has against life that it's so little like the books. If Mr. Whimperus here could only shut us all up between the covers of a novel, I should be able to say to you, pray join the staff at once at a salary of five quid a week each. As things are, I can't. Why, good heavens, you, you lost lamb, he cried savagely, shoving his jaw at me in a spasm of anger. What good are you, with your big grey eyes, to us? You'd be taken in by anyone who spun you any kind of a yarn. Stop, though. I'm not sure your big grey eyes mightn't be some good in getting a story out of people who won't melt to an ordinary reporter. He stared at us thoughtfully, then. I'll tell you what I'll do, he said at length. You've heard of the Murford mystery? Somebody whose motor-car has gone over a precipice into the sea and drowned them? I asked ungrammatically. Ah, but has it? That's the question. We've good reason to think that it's all a blind and that Mr. Murford, as he calls himself, is in hiding somewhere. The police are after him on a charge of getting money under false pretenses. You find him and get us a scoop on it and I'll see what I can do for you." There was an awful pause. I felt as though I'd been bidden to find a rock's egg or the philosopher's stone. Peter stood up and, thrusting his hands into his trousers' pockets, rattled the two half-pennies he kept there for the purpose. "'Right-o, we'll have a shot,' said he. "'Well said. You're the right stuff,' said the editor. Off you go. Oh, stop a moment. He in his turn dived into a pocket from which he retrieved a sovereign, which he held out to us. Expenses, you know, he said. Quite the custom, I assure you. Editors are a much maligned race, I cried, as Peter and I emerged into Fleet Street again. And now, how to find Mr. Murford? That was the question. How indeed. What we want, said Peter, is a clue. The best detectives always begin with a clue. Let's buy a paper and get up to date anyway, I advised. When we had bought it, we went and sat in the temple gardens to read it. What was known, however, did not amount to much. A Mr. Murford, apparently a man of means, had few months ago, appeared at the manor house of Fengate in Gloucestershire. He lived in a lordly way and had no profession beyond making himself liked, in which he seems to have thoroughly succeeded. One morning he had gone out alone in a new car, 
which was discovered next day in a shattered heap at the foot of a cliff in Somerset. Of the man who had been its occupant, nothing was to be found except his cap, which lay in a rock pool. The village and neighbouring gentry were much distressed, until the chief constable made the discovery that the water at that part was never over two feet in depth, and that no currents set there. The local tradesmen, whose bills had all been running on, came forward with a tale of all Mr. Murford owed them, and as Peter said, already journalese phrases seemed to trip off his tongue. The matter assumed a different complexion, a more brunette complexion, he added. What an egg for us if we could only find him, I sighed. I wonder if there's a portrait of him anywhere. Turn that page and see. He did, and there was, one of those blurred photographs which, while destroying detail, seemed to bring out all salient characteristics more strongly. The man showed plainly as a long-jawed fellow with a dome-like brow and a short black moustache over a flexible mouth. His rather high cheekbones caught the light. A very definite type, announced Peter. I stared at the picture in silence, for somewhere at the back of my memory the thought that I had seen the face before was pricking at me. Could it be merely that, as Peter said, it belonged to a type. Suddenly I gave a crow of excitement. Oh, Peter, I know him. What stupendous luck. It's Edgar Murdoch. Viv, explain yourself. You make my brain reel in its socket. Who is Edgar Murdoch, and why is he Mr. Murford? I don't know why he's Mr. Murford, but I'm sure it's Edgar. Why, he used to clean the boots and read Marcus Aurelius. Viv, I don't want to have to shake you in public. Do explain. Whose boots? Ours, father's and mine. We were lodging one summer at a queer old tumble-down place called Secrecy Farm. I believe priests and cavaliers or someone used to hide there. Isn't it a gorgeous name, Secrecy Farm? and Mrs. Murdoch ran the farm, which was practically moribund, and her son Edgar did the boots and other things, of course. He was about sixteen, and awfully clever in a way one felt would never come to anything. Mrs. Murdoch was a bleak sort of woman, and only lived for him. But funnily enough, she was very fond of me, and was awfully kind to me. How odd, said Peter. It seems that the next thing to do is to go to Secrecy Farm. Where is it? In London. It all sounds like a new Arabian Nights. Proceed, fair damsel. It's Hampstead Way. Let's take a bus. On the bus we laid our plans. Peter was to sit behind a bush on the heath while I went to the farm and asked for Mrs. Murdoch. Then my own intelligence, which unluckily has never been of the detective order, was to guide me. We broke into the editor's sovereign for our bus tickets, a lordly proceeding that seemed to annoy rather than impress the conductor. 
that little unpleasantness over and our plans laid i sat busy remembering all i could about mrs murdoch she had been a hard-working bright-eyed woman with a mouth like a rat-trap and a wonderful passion for her son so strong that it showed in spite of herself in the softening of her whole look when it fell on him she had worked like a man on the farm to give him more time for his education he attended a second-rate sort of private school and every halfpenny she could lay by was to be devoted to the same cause her edgar was to be somebody in the world and don't you forget it she herself could neither read nor write and edgar had to make out the accounts for her and he had turned out badly after all poor harsh fond mrs murdoch i broke off in my musings to bid peter glance at my watch it was already four o'clock i should have to be back at the hen-coop by eight at the latest if i meant to change in time for the drency and help in the last preparations i wondered a little about mr purvis whom i was to pursue with such a watchful eye that night even as i was now hoping to pursue edgar murdoch i felt myself singularly unfitted for either task and i was not sure that such a jack o' dreams as peter would be much help the fact of the matter was that fate had cast us in this affair for the part of a sherlock holmes and by nature we were nothing more sleuth-like than a watson End of chapter 14.